This Athletic Podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. This is for over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic, where we go through all things EFL. My name is George Ellick. I'm sitting opposite Ali Maxwell. And Ali, if I'm Jamie Curriton, then what does that make you? That makes me Nicky Forster. Incorrect. Martin Butler. No. Yeah, they were the two good ones at Reading. They scored 58 goals between them in a season. Sorry. Bad I luck. can't believe that. He was brought in to replace the injured Nicky Forster. I can't believe that. Anyway, we'll be, we'll be your hosts every Thursday and try and make some sense of the glorious English Football League. As ever, we'll be looking through some of the weekend's key games. We'll be looking at some news stories. Sheffield Wednesday will be the team in focus. Ali has a hot take debate that will have referees across the land very, very happy. And I'll be going back to 2009, the summer of 2009 for my EFL Rewind. A great show lined up and a reminder that all of our podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to subscribers of The Athletic. You can sign up today and get a 40% discount now by using the promo code EFLPOD. That's all one word, E-F-L-P-O-D. But first, we're going to take a look at the most interesting fixtures in the EFL this weekend. We've picked out a few fixtures across the EFL that we think are most exciting, most interesting, I suppose. And in the championship, it's hard to split, really, two relegation six-pointers. Bit of a cliche there. But after last weekend with Barnsley and Luton, the two bottom clubs winning and none of the six teams above them, things have got a little bit tighter. And whether it's Charlton or Luton, or Barnsley and Middlesbrough, who go head-to-head as well this weekend. There is plenty of intrigue down the bottom of the Championship. I want to look at Charlton versus Luton. Charlton are 19th on 36. Luton, second bottom, six points behind on 30 points. And I'm going to start with the home side, Charlton. Eight points from their last seven games. It's not loads, but it's a big improvement on eight points in 14 games before then. Uh, For Charlton, we know that... There's been so much happening off the pitch, finally uh, ridding themselves of former owner Roland Duchatelet with new owners coming in. So much happening off the pitch that really on it, the only objective is to stay above the, the dotted line. So beating Barnsley a few weeks ago was key. Uh, a surprise win at Nottingham Forest, very welcome indeed, but they have to make sure they keep Luton at bay this weekend. Uh, after 16 games, Charlton were 11th. And they'd scored 22 goals and conceded 19 in the 17 games since. They've got the worst record in the division, uh, scoring 19, conceding 28. So a bit of slippage on, on both ends of the pitch, really. They struggled to create goals 
from open play and that has been a, a key issue as well as the fact defensively they struggled to shut teams out with only two clean sheets in 21 games and they were bizarrely against playoff teams Fulham and Forest. So positives for Charlton, well they're very good at scoring from set plays, the best corner conversion rate in the league and also Lyle Taylor is back. He's had a really patchy season through injuries but when he has played he has scored nine goals for Taylor in just over 1,200 minutes. For reference, Luton's number nine, James Collins, has 10 goals in more than double the amount of minutes, both having scored three penalties. So in this game, Taylor, clearly the the more prolific striker than Collins for Luton. But Luton, probably in the, in the best nick they've been in this season, two 1-0 wins in a row. According to Graham Jones, the most pleasurable scoreline possible. Uh, it was only their second and third clean sheet of the season. Uh, and in those games, the key looking back, they've only faced two shots on target. That's really the key for them, restricting shots on goal, because the goalkeeping situation has undermined their efforts this season, whether it's been Sluger or Shea in the Luton goal. Um, they've struggled. The, the positives are these defensive improvements in the last two games and the fight being shown. Uh, many might have felt 10 days ago that Luton were already relegated, should start planning for League One, but that's certainly not the case. Izzy Brown, I think, is the key man here. He can be the real difference maker. I would go as far as to say potentially the only truly creative player on the pitch in this game. Charlton struggle uh, when it comes to creating chances. He's third for expected assists per 90 out of players who have played more than a 1,000 minutes in the championship this season. So he can really make things happen. And lastly, a, a, a quirk of data, I suppose, looking at Scout before this game. Both teams have the exact same number of expected goals, 33.72, which is remarkable after the same amount of games. Uh, and Charlton have scored 41 to Luton's 39. So um, pretty similar there. But they're also the two worst teams in the league in terms of expected goals against 55.6 for Luton uh, and 53 for Charlton. But Charlton have conceded 19 goals fewer. Now, that's quite an interesting one. It, it, it's not only down to goalkeepers there, but when you've conceded basically the same level of chances over the course of a season and one team has conceded 19 goals fewer, I think it does reflect quite well on Charlton keeper Dylan Phillips and potentially not that well on Simon Sluger and James Shea in the Luton goal. So for, for me, that shows there's very little between these teams uh, in terms of how they're playing and, and the quality of the two sides. Charlton's good start has them ahead in the table, but for me, hard to split them. I think the difference could be Lyle Taylor being a difference maker for, for Charlton, being a, a, a more prolific striker than Collins. So I'm going to go for a 1-0 Charlton win. 1-0 to Charlton, Ali Maxwell with all the stats and a little bit of slippage as well <laughs> in there too. On to League One now for me and it's a, a, a game between two sides in pretty similar positions in terms of their season so far. Ipswich versus Oxford United at Portman Road on Saturday. Ipswich currently in 7th on 52 points from 32 games. Oxford in 10th uh, with 48 points having played one fewer game with 31. And both of them come into this on the back of wins that could... I think has the fans hoping will we'll re-kick-start their season. I don't know if you can re-kick-start <laughs> stuff, but I've just tried to there. Uh, the Ipswich season looked like it was fizzling out. They were winless in four. They were 1-0 down at home to Burton on Saturday. And then a remarkable return to form during that game saw them win the game comfortable 4-1 winners. And they were good value for that win. Key players, mm. Alan Judge, a player who 
has had his injury problems in the past, but realistically his technical ability should have him head and shoulders above most in this league. And this was the game where I think we finally saw Judge. I mean, it's mid-February now, but we finally saw him putting in the kind of performance we expected him to put in earlier in the season. Judge, jury and executioner that Indeed, day. yeah. He scored two goals, he assisted one, and he nearly got a third with a brilliant shot that hit the woodwork. This is the player he should be. He should be dominating games. He should be the key creative force and a goal scorer for Ipswich. Interesting also to note on Saturday that James Norwood was an unused substitute. Paul Lambert has kept the faith with Will Keane and Caden Jackson recently without much uh, to show for it. But here they finally clicked and Jackson also in amongst the goals. But not only were they good going forward, they were very strong defensively as well. Uh, Murphy scored the goal for, for Burton doing what Murphy does, cutting in off the left-hand side and, and striking from distance into the back of the net. But they restricted Burton to just two shots inside the box all game. So despite Burton having 11 shots, they were really restricted to pretty uh, difficult chances. So it did feel like a game in which you know, there's been a lot of fan unrest about Paul Lambert, about the style of football, about the way they go about trying to win games. But this was dominant. It was attacking. The only thing I would warn against is that we saw this a few weeks ago against Accrington where they beat them 4-0. And that looked like it was going to be the beginning of something, at least the beginning of Ipswich's automatic promotion push and a torrid run of results came afterwards. I still have some doubts over the quality of this side in terms of personnel. Judge, though, crucially, is one of the players who is massively underachieved so far in an Ipswich Town shirt. So to see him doing that on a Saturday, if he can maintain that level, they should be a much more difficult proposition to play against. Oxford in a very similar position to Ipswich as well, where they had won just one league game in seven, having uh, occupied second spot just a couple of months ago. They looked like they were going to let that good position slip, but then come up against an AFC Wimbledon side midweek on Tuesday night at home, who in their last two games had taken points off Ipswich and Rotherham in two draws. They'd beaten Peterborough a few weeks ago, so by no means you know a whipping boy of the league, despite their lowly position. And this was probably as dominant a win as we've seen in League One for a long time. Some when brilliant goals scored as well. Some brilliant goals. And when Oxford took the lead, fair to say it already could have been two or three by the time they went 1-0 up and ended up winning the game 5-0. Uh, in terms of personnel, it saw the return of certain key men who were so crucial to that good run of form earlier in the season. James Henry was playing brilliantly down the right-hand side. Cameron Brannigan pulling the strings in midfield. Matty Taylor getting two goals. And he probably will, well, I'm sure he'll think he should have had more. And the new additions really, really coming to the fore. Nathan Hollands had a slowish start in an Oxford shirt on loan from West Ham. Big things expected of him, except for that goal against Newcastle in the FA Cup replay. But he scored two fantastic goals here, really, really classily taken, and was a threat the whole night down the left-hand side. And Marcus Brown, basically in that kind of form, looks like a Premier League player playing in League One. He is just way, way too good. And he came off to a rapturous uh, reception when he came off after about 65 minutes so sounds like quite an exciting game in the sense that both teams coming into it with a lot of confidence after taking a bit of a hit in that regard I think that's the key point to this is that a week ago this looked like a a game between two sides whose seasons were fizzling out now it's an opportunity to one side to really put themselves back in amongst the 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 playoff race and to deal a huge blow to another side who's going to be trying to get there the one thing I would say to this is in terms of pressure because Ipswich still have a higher league position, because they're at home and because generally they have higher expectations, it does feel like this is a little bit of a free hit for Oxford. A win would be a massive result for them to put them back in amongst it. A draw would be decent enough and a loss no one would really batter an eyelid. For Ipswich, they have to prove that this that wasn't a full storm on Saturday, that they are a side who can now go forward and score the goals necessary to get themselves in and uh, 
within that top six. It'll be interesting to see how Lambert sets up Ipswich here because Oxford have struggled any time that a side has set out to try and press them high, to try and stop the centre-backs from playing. John Massinho is out injured as well, who's the key man and the captain, meaning Elliot Moore will come in at centre-back for the next few weeks. It's a massive game for both sides. Maybe Oxford with less to lose. I do think it's going to be pretty tight, though. Um, I can't see Ipswich coming out and, and pressing high because it's not really the way they like to play. And they, but they do have a very, very solid defence. I'm going to say one all. Okay. League two now. There we go. League two. I'm going with Northampton against Exeter. This is the eighth place team hosting the second place team. But Northampton, talk about a team losing a bit of confidence. Three defeats in a row. Uh, a tight one against Port Vale that could have gone either way. They lost to a clearly better side against Swindon and then inexplicably last weekend gave away three goals to lose when 2-0 up at Walsall and in the meantime in doing so they've dropped out of the playoffs having worked damn hard to get there but between mid-October and the start of this month George Northampton were the best team in League Two they picked up more points than anyone else 45 points in 23 games so an extended spell where Northampton were essentially an automatic promotion team which got them over what was quite a slow start, got them into the playoffs. It looked like that was where they would stay. They were never, I would say, a dominant side in terms of, of the balance of play. But Keith Curl's team at their best, a side that, that takes their chances, uh, defensively very solid, a big threat from set pieces. Uh, and we saw that they were able to manage their leads very well. Their game management stood out in that run. They've got one of the best creators in the league in Nicky Adams. He's not so much a, a number 10, a passing type creator, but absolutely deadly crossing ability. And, and that has him up there in terms of assists. Whether they have a, a particularly prolific goal scorer, probably not. Dane Oliver, a good enough target man, but has never really shown that natural goal scorer's instinct. Andy Williams does show that, but not that involved in, in general play. Callum Morton's an interesting one, a bit of a wild card. He joined in January on loan from West Brom. Uh, not a player we've seen play much uh, senior football, but scored two against Walsall in the first half last weekend. I, I don't think, though, it's it's too harsh to say if you defend set pieces and you defend crosses well, then you can restrict cobblers. And they're up against one of the best defensive teams in the league in Exeter, having such an impressive season, potentially not getting enough credit sometimes, Exeter, because I, maybe I, I need to look inwards here. I feel like at different times we've really given a lot of credit to Swindon, to Crewe, to, to Plymouth Argyle as well. But Exeter have been in the automatic places for the whole season. Um, and I think maybe because of the slightly low-key nature of the manager, Matt Taylor, who, who tends to do his work fairly quietly, maybe we don't give them en enough credit. 15 clean sheets they kept in their first 28 games, more than one every other game. Uh, they haven't kept one in five, but... They are still a strong defensive side. The back three of Sweeney, Martin and Parks. Plenty of experience and plenty of quality as well. Uh, Nicky Law was kind of the, the, the key man in the first third of the season, you'd say, for Exeter. Attacking midfield player who was scoring important goals. Randall Williams is the elite creative player, probably in the division. Um, a winger or wing-back with excellent crossing delivery, but also uh, an ability to beat a man that's almost unrivaled at this level, you'd say. Um, both teams in this game will be playing three at the back. You know it's a big bugbear. Ugly. You know ugly. it's going to be an ugly game. It's not going to be uh, one for a the A bit ages. like your roll neck you're wearing now. Oh, come on. Don't go at the roll neck. <laughs> Don't go at the roll neck. That's At least these aren't 
At least these aren't filmed. <laughs> um, it's unlikely to be one for the ages, this game. I reckon a nil-nil or a, or a one-all draw. And to be honest, I think both teams would, would probably take that. For Exeter, this is a tough away game. And for Northampton, they just don't want to be losing four games on the bounce at this stage. So uh, there are the games that we are most excited about this weekend. This is the part, though, of the week that I'm most excited about. <laughs> it's time for the hot take debate. It's getting to the stage now where we're doing this every week. We're preparing. And I must say, I'm quite relieved when it's my turn to do the EFL Rewind and it's your turn to do the hot take debate because I like listening to your hot takes. Although I do know that you do like to get a few splinters in your behind. But let's see what you've gone for this week. Would you say it's fair that between us, we both prefer putting together the rewind because putting together the hot take a it you know it can it can get your back up a bit but mm. also you do get a bit nervous don't you you do get a bit nervous yeah, you never I know, know, I know you do yeah you never know what the reaction will be at my hot take this week george is that in the efl the referees are fine and the behavior towards them and the narrative around refereeing is completely wrong for for a guy who's taken the stance three and a half years on our podcast not to talk about referees i absolutely love this so i'm looking forward to hearing it yeah that's part of the reason why i want to take some time out today to put together this argument i suppose to put together my side of things and to discuss my feelings about referees and maybe that will go some way to explaining why we don't waste much time on monday talking about referees uh, decisions on our podcast sometimes referees make mistakes that is a given the low-scoring nature of the sport of football, the value of a goal compared to points or runs or goals in other sports means that refereeing decisions and therefore mistakes fundamentally are going to have more impact on a result than in other sports. That's one of the key reasons why football is so excellent, that low-scoring nature of it, the big swing, uh, emotional swing and the knife-edge aspect of the sport. Often, referees are completely fine. I think the job of a referee and their assistants is almost unfathomably hard for someone who's never refereed before. And I don't think that's discussed enough. Uh, 22 players moving probably at greater speed now and with greater skill than they ever have before. These are now players who are conditioned to fall in a certain way, to initiate contact, to pull and push at set pieces, to fall over when they're not fouled, sometimes not fall over when they are fouled, to constantly look to gain an edge. Uh, an edge is a, is a nice word for it. To, to constantly look to break the rules, really, and get away with it. To also shout and complain at the ref almost constantly. To swear, to distract from their job that they're trying to do. Referees cover between 10 and 13 kilometers in a game. It's about the same as, as most players do. They have around 250 decisions to make uh, during a game, according to PGMOL's uh, research. And I think the scrutiny on refereeing decisions is far too great. I've seen it described, and I can't claim this, but I'm going to co-opt it as trial by television for decisions made at lightning speed and without the benefit of replays or multiple camera angles. I think that there's a few different aspects to this. Fans in the stands, uh, often with a worse view, mostly without years of training behind them and, and a full knowledge of the laws of the game, sometimes experiencing the short-term effects of drinking alcohol. They make snapshot judgments of refereeing decisions where consciously or subconsciously, probably the latter, the first part of your thought process is, did that decision go for or against my team? That's basically obstacle number one. And if you're talking about an incident involving your team, you are biased, even if you 
don't want to be, even if it's completely unconscious, if you have no intention of being, there's maybe very, very negligible, but there is bias there. Some people call it tribal myopia. This can be seen every single day on social media, in real life, two sets of fans arguing over a penalty decision, for example. That was definitely a pen in the second half. What are you talking about? How can you say that? That was never a penalty. You, you remember incorrect decisions against your team. You probably don't remember the ones in favour of your team. And yet, in the time that you've supported your team, whoever it is and however long that's been, there will be an almost equal number of decisions that have gone for or against your team. The other thing is coverage, broadcast coverage. And this is an area where obviously I'm not innocent of this. Generally, the first or second questions in an interview now, the first or second talking point on TV analysis after a game is about a refereeing decision. Now, the justification within broadcasters, and this is a discussion I've had plenty of times, is that fans want to see these incidents back again. They want to see contentious incidents that they saw at the game and therefore they can have it cleared up for them. And I understand that. But I do think that it hasn't helped build this really atmosphere surrounding referees and the abuse that they receive, essentially, that I'm not particularly comfortable with. Abuse on referees is unfettered and comes from almost every angle. Uh, there's a study that's been done, and this isn't specific to the EFL or the Premier League, but referees all across the country, 94% say they've been a victim of on-pitch abuse. I think that's unsurprising, to be honest. We all recognise how how easy it is, and even playing six aside, I've probably shouted at the ref, 55% rated the scale of abuse they received to be so intense they felt threatened. Players know now they can say almost anything. Managers, and this might be a, a, a miss memory of of mine but I'm sure there used to be pretty strong warnings or fines for slagging off the refs in post-match interviews now it's a matter of course uh, they they know that unless they basically call them a cheat they're probably going to be able to get away with saying that was the wrong decision and again they've got these bias psychologically that they don't recognize but they're happy to, to question the integrity sometimes of uh, a person who's who's ultimately doing their job I'm not saying that that refs don't make mistakes that impact games and it, it's not an issue in you know the discussion of, of a refereeing decision for me the problem is the way that it's escalated into extreme statements and or abuse I think that there's a gap between saying that was a mistake he got that one wrong and then it's a disgrace which you see sometimes it's got to change he should never referee again this is a massive issue is there not an argument, and I, and I couldn't agree with you more about the abuse that referees get and the way that it's portrayed is, is too over the top, but there will be a massive group of people who basically love football, not because of football, but because of the drama that it brings to their life. Whether that is being able to stand on a terrace or sit in a seat for two hours on a Saturday and scream, which is we all know that happens a lot, whether it's enjoying the drama that football unfolds the whole time with unfair advantages that people get and the narrative that comes out of it. So whilst I, I agree with you that the abuse is bad and the way that players and, and managers and those within the game can, what they get away with now is unfair. I would say there's an argument to be had that the the incorrect decisions that referees make and fans' ability to kind of rise up in the face of that is probably part of why they like football. 
yeah, if that's true, uh, and it's certainly not why I fell in love with football, then that I think is is a something of a shame. I think that the sport itself is good enough that uh, shouting at a referee doesn't need to be a key part of it. But I I, I do recognise your point. Interestingly, there's a piece on the Athletic today by Daniel Taylor, an interview with Bobby Madeley, uh, and it's a, it's an amazing read, and I think it's quite an important read. One of the things that Bobby Madeley says is that the message he'd like to convey is a simple one. Be kinder. Remember that referees are human too. He's not asking for an amnesty. He understands there will be times where players and fans are so caught up in the sport, as you've said there, that they will lose their temper. Um, But there's a line and people have to know when to stop because what's worse is that this is happening to 15 and 16-year-olds and it filters down. That's his point. And I suppose, like many things in life... I recognise what you're saying, George. I understand the passion of it. I understand what that makes people do. Short-term behaviours um, brought on by such passion, such emotion. But we all have a responsibility to police ourselves, to behave properly as well. There's no, You can't just give away any responsibility because you're part of a crowd or because this is something that you've always done. I think that it's something that really needs to be looked at. And I think part of the problem is there's no one to defend referees because no one really has a stake in defending them as, as a body of people, uh, apart from referees themselves, and they're not really allowed to talk anyway. So there's really, when I say the abuse is unfettered, because there's basically no one to stop it. And so that makes things like all the statements about it has to change, it's a disgrace, it's, a, it's ruining football, there's really no there's no one to come back to that that doesn't become a debate it just gets accepted you can't find current data to suggest that refereeing standards are slipping that there's way more errors than there ever was before i find it hard to believe that would be the case almost everything in sport has improved like it's unlikely that things are going to get way worse and so i just think that it becomes the accepted wisdom referees are not cheating nor are they biased referees don't hate your team they don't ruin the game they actually facilitate the game we couldn't have it without them for some of them it's their full-time job for others a part-time job freelance if you will they've all worked their way up there's a very hierarchical system of of moving upwards they are assessed and evaluated were they to be biased they would lose that job so i just wanted to really Go out to bat for the referees in this segment. I do like the idea that if you make a really bad mistake, you should just never do it again. Like Chris Porter, the crew striker, missed an open goal last weekend. Never play football again. He shouldn't play football again. It's a disgrace that he missed that. And, uh, you know, he should be... He should be demoted three leagues um there's there's a there's an interesting discussion to be had about how the efl go about um uh, sort of organizing their officiating i was interested to read and i think people will be interested to know that at the start of this year championship clubs contributed fifty thousand pounds each towards the cost of 18 referees going full-time most people know that in league one and league two the referees are part-time so clearly it would be ideal if we could have a situation where league one and league two referees were full-time professional referees would league one and league two clubs would they be happy to put forward 50 grand each a year to achieve that i don't know if if that's not their responsibility who should take that responsibility and where does the money come from there's plenty of interesting uh, topics to this i'm just happy 
that currently it seems that VAR in the EFL is pretty much impossible. I think it would be a disaster. Uh, and thankfully, I think it's impossible due to essentially lack of money, resources, technology and staffing. So I'm but just there happy. That, there's that ridiculous thing that the EFL clubs had to pay for VAR, for VAR in the FA Cup. Oh, yeah. And they didn't realise it after the games and they got lumped with a bill. Half of it. Well, it's ruining the, the Premier League fan experience. I think it would ruin the EFL fan experience. What I'm saying is, please, when it comes to referees, calm down slightly. We have a beautiful, imperfect sport, the best in the world. And they, referees, human referees, I should add, are very much part of that. Fresh off the hot take and into Not The Back page, where we look to show, we'll just tell some of the stories that maybe don't get the, the media attention that they should do within the EFL. And it's been quite a quiet week this week. So we're scrambling around for stories, but there's one that I do quite like from League Two. It comes from Stevenage. And it's a story, I mean, this is just ridiculous. It kind of it encapsulates League Two in 2020. I would say this would never have happened 10 years ago. <laughs> Stevenage Oldham back in uh, November was postponed because Stevenage had uh, three international call-ups. Those call-ups were Afghanistan's Nur Hussain, Antigua and Barbuda defender Luther Wildin and Guyana's Terence Van Kooten. So what is the question? I hear you ask. What is the question? What George? is the news? Oldham have complained to the uh, EFL saying that Stevenage didn't act in good faith in what? postponing that fixture. Why? And uh, Phil Wallace, the club chairman, has said he's genuinely stunned at the complaint from Oldham, which is set to be heard uh, at an independent disciplinary, d- disciplinary commission. So Oldham is saying that wasn't enough for it to be is, postponed. I, I look through the players in in question. Like Luther Wilden is basically their best player, so yeah. there's no issue with that. Terence Van Kooten plays every week. Yeah. Nur Hussin plays all the way up basically to this game and then just hasn't really featured again. Right. So I wonder if it's something about about Hussin. So, so you'd say it's it, they were three first team players. It looks totally fair. I mean I do love that the countries as I say in League 2 are Afghanistan, Antigua and Barbuda and Guyana, a real sign of the times. But, but obviously the, the big plot twist is Oldham's manager is Dino Marmria. Exactly. And Dino Marmria started the season as Stevenage manager. Exactly. And so the sort of unspoken part of this story is, is he just, it, what's going on here? But what I find amazing about this is that Stevenage, unless they get some help from the EFL in, in Macclesfield's situation, Stevenage are, are all but down here. Mm. Oldham are all but safe. So it seems, it seems very pernickety to come back to yeah. this here. But anyway, I wonder, just what, what, I wonder what Oldham would have to gain from it. There's surely no chance that cash? they I don't get know. the points. No. Um, yeah, may, yeah, you could see Stevenage potentially getting a fine, but I don't see what Oldham would necessarily gain. I mean, it, it's it's just a bit of a bizarre situation, certainly from the Stevenage side. But having said that, it's kind of what the segment's all about. So That's uh, true. Uh, Not the back page, yeah. but good bit of news. Uh, you said it was a, a quiet week. Uh, I agree with you. Not Not loads of things leaping out at us. It has been a a good week on the athletic site. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to flag up a few stories on there that in the absence of excellent EFL general news might be worth a read for, for subscribers. Uh, Ryan Conway, who covers Derby, has gone deep on the impact of Wayne Rooney at Derby. Bigger crowds, shirt sales up 30% and 7.6 million social hits in a day. That is the sort of thing we dream of, George. We need to try and get Rooney on the pod. <laughs> uh, an amazing piece by Michael Walker that we spoke about 
out on our podcast on Monday, uh, an interview with Ian Holloway discussing his start at Grimsby. A look back, this is an EFL rewind of sorts from Phil Hay and Jack Lang looking back at Rocket Jr.'s spell with Leeds in the Premier League. A World Cup winner turning up at Ellen Road and playing uh, not like that, I think it's fair to say. And then a pair of Windasses, if that's the plural for Windass. Uh, Josh Windass has been written about by Nancy Frostick, the Sheffield Wednesday writer for The Athletic, and how he can light up the championship. Uh, and his dad, Dean Windass, former professional, uh, a really touching piece with him and Richard Sutcliffe r- writing that one about why he is um, really at the forefront of, uh, of mental health awareness at the moment and on social media and why he makes his bed every morning so uh, I thought those were all really fascinating pieces and good ones to look at and it kind of leads us on to uh, in focus this is a club that we're looking at a little bit more in depth this week it's Sheffield Wednesday I say it links on because I'm going to be using a couple of things that Nancy has written about Sheffield Wednesday uh, when looking at this club in depth it was a kind of an obvious selection because we're, we're looking for interesting on-pitch stories, but also things off the field that are worth covering. And Sheffield Wednesday tick every single box. They were third at Christmas. Since then, they've got five points in 10 games, uh, including seven defeats, and they've dropped all the way out of the playoff places, and it kind of looks like their season, uh, in terms of competitiveness, is, is kind of over. You can imagine that due to that, there's a lot of unrest about what's happening on the pitch, but also there's plenty off the pitch that fans are are pretty furious with as well. So um, in terms of the on-pitch stuff, one of the things we've discussed is is whether it could be a theme of Gary Monk's management, uh, sort of second half of the season syndrome. And I went back through the numbers. Uh, It's it's not quite as compelling argument as you might think, but it's it's not going to look good if it continues like this, put it that way. Sheffield Wednesday had 30 points from his first 17 games. It's five in 10 since then. Uh, At Leeds, the first half of the season, they were fifth on Boxing Day with 41 points from 23. Uh, The second half of the season, they got seven points fewer, 34 in their 23 games. Uh, At Middlesbrough, he was sacked exactly at the half point, at the halfway point of the season. Uh, 35 points they had in 23 games. And with Birmingham last season, 34 points in the first half of the season, 27 in the second half of the season. I think it's fair to point out that they might have lost a bit of motivation after a, a points deduction meant that their playoff push was, was always off the card. So um, that's certainly a point of interest. Other things, and you're going to run us through what the fans are saying, because I think almost more than any, any in-focuses that we've had so far, the fans have had plenty to say. Um, but you, you always have to talk about recruitment when it comes to Sheffield Wednesday, because... I'd probably say they've they've done it about as badly as anyone else in the championship over the last five years or so. Um, the, the the chairman Chanziri had a ambitious target uh, of reaching of reaching the Premier League within three years of buying the club in 2015. And as Nancy's written about, since that initial influx of quite expensive players in their primes who were signed to launch an assault on the Premier League, short term it almost worked. They lost the playoff final. The next year, they lost in the semi-final. They almost got there. The problem is the hangover from that, which they're still suffering from. Of the squad that started the 2015-16 season, 
Uh, 10 players still at the club, seven of them now over the age of 30. And they've just had a real problem shifting players. Since the start of 15-16, they've only made £7.6 million from 44 sales of players. Uh, only Millwall have a worse record and they were in League One uh, for at least one season of that. So there's been a lot of talk about the other side of things, their, their record of bringing players in. And if you look at the six transfer window since losing the playoff semi-final they've probably only added five good permanent signings which is less than one a window that's a really poor a poor record it's not that spending has been excessive but the lack of money coming in from player trading that took them to a point where they were in trouble potentially with financial fair play measures and then of course the current uh, debates with the EFL with potential sanctions on the horizon after they sold their stadium to themselves to avoid the the FFP threshold, if you if you will. Now that was allowed within the EFL's rules, but they did so at a price that the EFL say was an overvaluation. So we're going to find out what the ruling is soon. Potential points deduction in the air, but we really don't know what the result will be at this stage. So it's becoming clear, George, that Chanziri's ambition, as it was called at the time when they spent quite a lot of money, was essentially a gamble, but not a particularly shrewd one. And and they're really feeling the effects all across the club. Uh, what are the fans saying about this? Yeah, so I've started with a couple of um, opinions on what's going on on the pitch, then we'll get to the off-the-pitch stuff after. Uh, Sharpie says, Fletch has been a massive miss. However, there is no explaining or justifying the complete com- capitulation. The statistics were very deceptive about us and our defence when we were doing well, as it always has been a weak point. And now that we've stopped scoring, we look a real mess. Very worrying. So essentially saying that third place was a, a false position. Well, that's it's, well, it's rare that you hear fans say that. It's weird that you said that because Tom L says third place was a false position. <laughs> so slightly misleading anyway. But f- missing Fletcher and Luongo certainly. Huge chunk of the squad out of contract soon and probably they know they aren't getting a new one. Monk, that's an interesting point. Monk changing system and players more than his underpants. That's the point I made last week. As for the way the club has run, you'd need a special edition podcast. Disgusting ticket prices, awful recruitment, nobody actually running the day-to-day, no plan, basically. And that segues us into, I think, what is the key point here is that stuff off the on the pitch clearly isn't good. But even when stuff was good on the pitch, off the pitch, there were issues. And that is the core of why Sheffield Wednesday are struggling at the moment. Mark says, off the pitch, I don't know where to start. Shocking recruitment since the playoff final. Chancery, unrealistic valuation of players, so we can't sell and reinvest. Monk hasn't been able to bring in any of his own staff. Players at the club on big, comfortable contracts who need to be moved on. Needs a big rebuild job in the summer. I'd like to see Monk given the chance with his own staff and players. Fans sense some sort of entitlement to be up there challenging due to money spent from Chancery and with how much we pay for our tickets and... And as the club is going backwards, the fans are more than frustrated. Finally, Andy says, stadium selling, I'm on the fence about until the deal details come out. The company we sold to not existing on the date we needed to have it sold by is Schoolboy. But both of us and Derby have made noises about EFL being engaged in the process and goalposts moving afterwards. Chancery has had bad advice and reacts like a child to criticism. Reminds me of someone I know. Structure at the club isn't right. He thinks because he has spent money, there is no accountability. That would be fine if the ticket prices weren't as high as they are. So certainly the finger, I would say, from this snapshot of the fans being pointed pretty much at Chancery. Monk, blameless to an extent. I think the fans would like to see him maybe show a little bit more faith in his preferred 11 and his preferred system. 
Um, but you know, it doesn't certainly seem to be no, the, certainly no no desire it's not to top be of the sacked. List, is it? No, yeah. no, I think the off-field issues seem to be the things that are occupying fans' minds the most. George, uh, with all due respect to the Sheffield Wednesday fans, uh, we're going to move away from their current plight with sympathy, but also with some trepidation on my behalf, some excitement because it's time for EFL Rewind. And it's a brilliant way for me to basically wrap up this podcast. I can put my feet up, close my eyes, and you're going to trans- the kettle on. You're yeah. going to transport me back in time. Yeah, we're going to start at the end as well for this one. Oh, so you're not done yet, I'm afraid, because we're going to start with a bit of a quiz. Well, I'm going to read out to you a team, and you've got to tell me the game that will be the focus of this EFL rewind. Oh wow, brilliant. Okay, Michael Theokletos, Michael Nelson, John Otsemabor. Gary Doherty, Adam Drury, Owen Tudor-Jones, Matt Gill, Simon Wally, Wes Houlihan, Grant Holt, Chris Martin. Is this game Norwich losing 7-1 to Colchester? It is. <laughs> it is. It is. This is the 8th of August, 2009. Norwich won Colchester United oh, 7. I remember it as if it were yesterday. And I, I mean, it's terrifying. It's it's yeah over 10 years ago. Uh, and I'm going to tell the story about how Norwich City, on opening day, having just been relegated from the championship into League One, managed to lose at home 7-1 to Colchester United. So we have to go back to where it all started. And that is a man called Mr. Brian Gunn. Brian Gunn, for those who don't know, was a goalkeeper who basically personified Norwich throughout an era. He was Sir Alex Ferguson's goalkeeper at Aberdeen, moved to Norwich and played over 300 games for them and you know, was incredibly successful to the extent that when he retired from football in, 2000, sorry, in 1999, he, became the, he was part of the woodwork there. He was part of the furniture. He became the club's sponsorship manager during which he was named Sheriff of Norwich. <laughs> he then he moved, must have got some good sponsors on board. Well, he actually initially, when he, before he was sponsorship manager, he initially worked at the um, hospitality area kind of working the room, which was called the Gun Club. <laughs> uh, and he then moved on to an advisory role on the sports side, uh, overseeing the work of manager then Glenn Roder. And Glenn Roder's time in it's charge... It's a classic move, that, isn't it? Sponsorship into football operations. Sponsorship to, f- to sheriff, to football <laughs> operations, to manager. Glenn Roder was sacked in January 2009, uh, and the club were, I think, from my research, bottom of, what, of the championship. Had a after a terrible, terrible run, Gunn is asked to take over just for one game whilst they look for their manager. That game is home against Barnsley. He is greeted at Carrow Road as a hero, as the hero that he is. Whilst it's nil-nil at half-time against against Barnsley, they go on to win the game 4-0 with goals from Wes Houlihan, Jamie Curriton, Sammy Klingon and Daryl Russell. Wow. The reaction is absolutely massive. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of talk of euphoria, uh, lots of, you know, just massive fan pressure that this Brian Gunn, their hero, has come in and taken a team bottom of the league and they've won their first game 4-0. The Scotland on Sunday, the paper, ran a story saying that in the dressing room afterwards, Norwich midfielder Daryl Russell dragged the chairman, Roger Munby, into the shower and demanded that Brian Gunn is appointed permanently immediately. The same article talks about how a Facebook group created by Gunn's daughter, Melissa, was created called Brian Gunn for Manager and soon attracted 3,000 members. His daughter? His daughter, oh, Melissa. No. Uh, to be fair, I used to set up some, some similar themed <laughs> Facebook groups. So on the 19th of January 2009, having never thought about being a manager, 
he calls the, the the board of directors and says, I want to be considered for this role. He's interviewed that afternoon and by 10.30 in the morning, the next day, he is appointed manager till the, till the end of the season. Wow. Pulled the trigger quickly there, didn't they? They then go seven without a win after that. Oh, no. Only win four more games in the season and finish with three consecutive defeats, losing 4-0, sorry, losing 4-2 on the final day against Charlton when they still had a chance of staying up going into it. Probably the key game here, and we'll come on to why this is important later, was the loss against Ipswich in the Old Farm. Mm. As Giovanni Dos Santos led Ipswich, apparently his display was absolutely unbelievable. They win the game 3-2. And Kevin Lisby uh, got the assist for the third goal, but crucially was said to have dived to win uh, a penalty in the game, a crucial penalty. And after the game, Brian Gunn says that even Lisby himself had told him that he didn't think it was a penalty. (laughs) This is Gunn's quote after the Charlton game. Even going to Charlton on the last day, I thought we could survive. We lost 4-2 and and were relegated to the third tier. I was shell-shocked. The emptiest I've I've ever felt in a sporting or professional context. The directors went on the field to face the fans and to thank them for their support. And I had tears in my eyes when I saw Delia and Michael doing that. I told them how sorry I was. You would think that would be the end of Brian Gunn and Norwich. But no, he is appointed permanent manager in the summer and is tasked with getting Norwich back to the championship the first time of asking. Let him build his own squad. Let him get rid of the bad apples. Well, you say that. Here he, we go. He builds He builds his own squad. He, builds <laughs> in, he brings in a lot of players. I'm going to get onto the players he brings in at the end of this. But just to give him due credit, because it would be unfair to not give him credit where credit's due this, because, again, we don't want to be laughing at a poor Brian Gunn here who was, you know, as a player, a legend at the club. He, the key signing that summer was Grant Holt, who he brought in for, from Shrewsbury after he scored 20 goals for them. And it's fair to say that that signing probably has, has changed the course of, of Norwich's future. So credit to Brian Gunn for making that signing. We'll get to the other ones he brought in a little bit later. But optimism is obviously high. I mean, it, it feels like the perfect game to get underway. Colchester had finished mid-table the season before, which they were really chuffed with. They've got a fresh-faced Scottish legend and Paul Lambert in charge as well. And... I mean, imagine this, a sunny day at Carrow Road and after 22 minutes, they're 4-0 down <laughs> and they're 5-0 down after 38 minutes. On and the ball, make, City. And to, and to make matters worse, at half-time, they're 5-0 down. Guess who scored a brace? Kevin Lisby. Oh, no. The man, the man who dived in that, in that fateful old farm game. I don't, I don't believe it. Uh, Cody McDonald comes off the bench and scores the consolation, but they're beaten 7-1. And just reading some of the reports about this game, Two fans at 4-0. So this is after 22 minutes. Two fans get through the barriers, get to the dugout and throw their season tickets at Brian Gunn. 22 minutes into 22 the season. 22 minutes into the season. This is Grant Holt's debut. Imagine showing him during that game what was, what was going to end up happening. The sad part about this is, there's a, a quote from Brian Gunn where he says, there must be a generation of fans who only know me as the manager who lost 7-1 against Colchester. My own memories are different. And that is desperately sad given the you know the job he did as a goalkeeper there the stuff he did behind the scenes you know again he was sheriff of Norwich and it's worth mentioning here I didn't realize this I thought he was sacked immediately after the game he took charge of a Norwich team once more as they beat Yeovil 4-0 in the EFL Cup before he was sacked after that game before managing another league game so he did get a nice 4-0 win under his belt again and then he is sacked and guess who replaces him unsurprisingly the board had a look at that Colchester team and thought to themselves they're quite good. Yeah. And they approached Paul Lambert and Lambert was in charge at Norwich and took them up 
with 95 points that very season, that with, season. Gr- with Grant Holt scoring 24 goals. I wonder how many teams in the FL history have won promotion with a 7-1 defeat. Not very many. On, their, sh- on their fixtures card. But just a small word on some of the, some of the recruitment that summer, because this is absolutely extraordinary. So Goran Maric was one who came in on trial from Barcelona B, yeah. was signed, didn't make a single league appearance. Royce Wiggins, who went on to have a decent enough career, £100,000, mm-hmm. no league appearances. Ah. Simon Wally did great stuff for uh, Preston, £225,000. Uh, Two more appearances after the 7-1. Owen Tudor-Jones, £350,000. Four more league appearances after the, the Colchester game. And this is possibly the worst. Michael Theocletos never played again for Norwich. He, no. was br- he was brought in from, I think it was Brisbane Raw. Never played again for them. I asked Michael Bailey, the athletic writer um, for Norwich City, any, for any stories about this time. And he told me just one that he could remember, which is that Grant Holt and Michael Theocletos were walking away from Cow Road after the game. And Michael Theocletos dropped his phone and Grant Holt had to bite his tongue to prevent himself saying anything. Oh dear. Michael Theocletos, a year later, changed his name to just Michael Theo. And I wonder if maybe part of that was because he didn't want people Googling what happened after that game. It is an unbelievable story, the time that Brian Gunn had at Norwich. And I'm sorry to, to shine a light on it. Maybe one day we'll talk about the amazing stuff he did between the sticks. But even so, the way that, that, that we got to that fixture and just the game itself to be 4-0 down after 22 minutes. Um, but To hire the opposition but manager. But pointing out, it's one of those sliding doors moments where Grant Holt coming in, Paul Lambert coming in, set. Norwich on a pathway that has led to where th- them being where they are now. So maybe um, instead of being remembered as the man who took charge of the 7-1 defeat, Brian Gunn should be remembered as the man who was replaced by Paul Lambert who took them on that magical journey. A beautiful story, George. What a beautiful sport it is. <laughs> That's where we end this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and for listening. Uh, all of our podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to subscribers of The Athletic. Now, if you haven't subscribed already, it's obviously not about just podcasts with The Athletic, but a whole stable of excellent football writers writing good stuff all the time. You can sign up and get a 40% discount now by using the promo code EFLPOD. It's all one word, so EFLPOD. That will get you 40% off your annual athletic subscription. Otherwise, we'll be back again next week. We'd appreciate any feedback that you have on the Going Up, Going Down podcast, so please do get in touch at NTT20POD. Can't wait till next week. Thank you.